Father, we come to you today and we're here to celebrate that you rose from the dead. That your son didn't just come into this world to be a great teacher. He didn't just come in this world to be a great leader. But he came to be our, our sacrifice who was also victorious. Father, it's so easy for us to sing the words that Jesus paid it all. And, and Lord, we don't know what all that it was that, we, that he paid. It's easy for us, Lord, to, to say all, all to him I owe. And yet, God, it's so hard sometimes to live that and to do that. Father, we, we just thank you that you saw it right for your son to come into this broken and dark world. And while we were still enemies and strangers and we weren't even here yet, you recognized that we would need a savior, that we would need forgiveness. And you sent your son to pay that price. I just pray this morning, Lord, that as we open your word and we reflect on the final hours of Jesus' life and on the resurrection, that, Father, we might be motivated and realize just how enormous your love is for us, how deep your grace runs, how far-reaching your, your vision truly is and your plan and your purpose. But also, Lord, I just pray that we might, we might be challenged to live our lives even more for your glory and for your purpose. Father, we just thank you so much for the chance we have to be here today. We just ask you would bless us and open our hearts as we open your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've taken a journey in the last few weeks from the point in time in, John, in Luke, the ninth chapter, where Jesus said, or where Luke records that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. We, we've been following Jesus as he, as he ministers and as he teaches, as he shares and as he cares. We've watched Jesus stop and, and, and visit with people that no one else would visit with, be concerned about situations that no one else was really concerned about. We, we, we've noticed that Jesus' heart is for the people that are around him who are lost and harassed and helpless as he describes them like sheep without a shepherd. But ultimately, that Jesus' purpose was was that he might seek and save the lost and accomplish and finish the, the, the will of the Father. There's this verse that we, we read over in Luke, the 13th chapter. And maybe in more than any, in many other ways, it kind of, kind of shapes for us the heart of Jesus. In my mind's eye, he's sitting in the Garden of, of Olives and he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem that's spread out on the other side of the Kidron Valley from there. And, and you could probably see pretty much the whole city of Jerusalem. And, and Jesus almost laments when he says this. But in verse 34 of Luke 13, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He knows the history of Jerusalem and he, 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 he reminds himself and us of that. He said, The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. If you know the story of, uh, of Jesus and if you know the story of many of God's prophets, they, they went faithfully and declared the word of the Lord to a, a group of people at a particular time. But oftentimes, the culture that they went to, they weren't necessarily ready to listen and hear that, right? And, and Jesus recognizes that. But notice what he says next. He said, how often I would have gathered you, your children, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you were not willing. 
It's that image there of Jesus saying, you know what I really wanted to do, Jerusalem? I just wanted you to pull you in close. I, I just wanted to protect you from the things that are going on in this world. I just wanted to insulate you from everything that, that is crazy and, and full of chaos out there, but you weren't willing. This morning, we're going to take a few moments, and we're just going to kind of follow our way through some of the most powerful moments of that last 24 or 48 hours of Jesus' life. Those moments where, where Jesus is with the people that, that would be gathered to him and sometimes pushed into situations that he didn't really want to be in. And I want you to notice as we look through these, through these verses, you really get a sense of the person that Jesus is. Jesus is a human being under stress like no other, and yet his mission and his purpose and his love for people and for God is just radiated in everything that he says and he does, and that's just such an inspirational thing. Like the moment that he spends with his apostles. He gathers them together in the upper room and, and to celebrate together with them the Passover feast, and this, of course, is an ancient festival that, that looked back in, in Israel's history to that moment in time where they were in slavery in the land of Egypt. And God had worked nine plagues in the land of Egypt to clearly illustrate to Pharaoh that he needed to let God's people go. But Pharaoh was hard-hearted, refused to do so. And so God was going to kind of pull out the very last thing that he had to do to get Pharaoh to allow his children to leave the land of captivity. And, and, and so... Moses told the people that what we were going to do is they were going to have a, have a meal. They were going to prepare simple foods, uh, unleavened bread, so it would make the journey with them. And they were going to sacrifice a lamb, and they were going to take the blood of that lamb, and they were going to sprinkle that over the doorposts of their houses. And then when the, the death angel passed over the land of Egypt, that he would see the blood, and he would pass over their house. And so literally, the name of the festival was the Passover festival because it, it harkened back to this moment when God had graciously passed over the people who had faithfully were obedient to him. And it's, you've got to imagine as Jesus gathers together this group of 12 guys that are his closest companions, that, that some of that imagery is kind of certainly going through Jesus' mind because Jesus knows that he is that perfect lamb and that his blood will be shed and that we can be buried into his blood and when we're covered in that blood, the, the, the judgment of God passes over us. Jesus knew all that was there. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. In John 13 and verse 15, John records these words of Jesus. Jesus said, I have set you an example. The example that Jesus had set, incidentally, was that while the rest of them had just kind of greedily set themselves and prepared for dinner, Jesus noticed that no one had washed the feet of the disciples, and that was something that they just did. And so Jesus got up. And he took off his jacket and he put a towel around his waist and he poured a, a bowl of water and got a rag and he goes around and himself, the creator of the universe, imagine this imagery, if you will, takes the feet of the very ones that he created and he begins to wash the feet of these people. And of course, the disciples are kind of put back by that and Peter says, I don't want that. And if you were here last week, Jacob did a Lord's Supper talk where he, he mentioned how important that washing was. Jesus said, I have set you an example. I have washed your feet that you should do as I have done to you. Or maybe later while they were eating in Matthew the 25th chapter, or 26th chapter rather, Matthew records this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And that little phrase really kind of opens up a conversation that Jesus has, not directly but indirectly with Judas, who had set about to to deny Jesus for the cost of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver. And, And Jesus was wrestling with Judas, and he's saying, Judas, I know what you're about to do. Don't do it, right? And you've got to, you just got to love that, 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 that concern that Jesus has. Uh, he knows the future, but he says, Judas, there's other ways. You don't have to be the one. But we know that Judas will choose to be that one. Mark, the 14th chapter, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in many, many ways. Because while they're eating, Mark records in verse 22 that he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks or he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. You've got to imagine that in that moment as Jesus takes that piece of bread and he breaks that piece of bread, he's thinking about everything that is about to happen in his life. In the next eight hours, he will go through immeasurable torture, and he will be hanging from a cross in, in less than eight hours. He, his lifeblood will be freely flowing. His body will be broken for our forgiveness and for their forgiveness. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about at this moment as he took this bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. But a few days later, they would understand completely. Then the children, uh, uh, Jesus and the apostles rather, moved from the upper room out into the garden. And, and even in this moment of great anguish, Jesus' character remains consistent, doesn't it? That's a remarkable thing. He, he begins to have a conversation with Peter. And, and you know Peter. Peter's that, that guy that just has such passion and, and, and drive. And he's a lot like me, maybe like you. His heart's in the right place. And, and he wants to be that person that stays on fire for God or for Jesus no matter what. And he wants to tell Jesus, I'm going to be by your side, Jesus. Jesus answers back to Peter in Matthew 26 and verse 34. And he said, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter was certainly thinking, no, there's no way. There's no way. I am here by your side. I will be your defender. I will die with you because he had just said that. In fact, if you die, I'm going to die because we're one in this together. But then Jesus says something in just a couple verses down that every time I read it, I think this is for me as much as it is for Peter. In verse 41 of the same chapter, Matthew 26, Jesus says to Peter, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, so often that sounds like Jason and maybe that sounds like you. On the outside, in the inside, in my spirit, I, I want to be that follower of Christ. I want to exhibit those attitudes and those behaviors. I want to be full of the spirit and used of God to accomplish the things that he would want me to do in my life. And yet, I come to that moment of temptation and all of a sudden, I find myself in a place of weakness. And Peter certainly did as well. And if you know the story, you know that Peter will in fact fail in a magnificent way and in a very public way. And as Jesus said before the rooster crowed, three different occasions, Peter would say he didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus knew what was lying ahead of him. The disciples didn't. And yet he lovingly is encouraging them, stay on your guard, be ready for this. Encourage them to make the right choice even if they would not. Then there's that fateful moment in Matthew 26 
where Jesus has seen the soldiers leaving the house of Caiaphas probably and making their way through that Kidron Valley, working their way up the hillside that is the Mount of Olives. And he wakes the disciples and he said, come, let's go. The time has come. And, and probably they're thinking to themselves, what time? It's in the middle of the night, Jesus. I know you want us to pray, but can you just get some sleep? And then as they wake up and rub the sleep from their eyes, they recognize that not far from them is a procession of people, of armed soldiers that are coming out of the city. And as they, grow, they draw nearer, they recognize that one of their own, Judas, is with them. And they've got to be thinking, what is going on right here? And then Judas walks up to Jesus and puts his arms around his shoulders and he gives him a kiss. He had set that up as a signal. The Judas kiss, the kiss of a betrayer. It wasn't a kiss of love or concern or affection or closeness. It was a contrived sign. And it was one of the most ugly things that you could ever imagine it, was, it, it demonstrated the, the intimacy and, and physical vulnerability that Jesus had, and yet he used that close friendship to be the sign that he used to give him away. Now, I don't know what you would say if Judas had come up and give you a kiss on your cheek. But I think if it was me and I had him nice and close, I would whisper in his ear, Judas, I hope you enjoy burning in hell. But that's not what Jesus did. If you look in Matthew 26 and verse 50, in the face of this absolute betrayal, Jesus says to Judas, do what you came for, friend. He called him a friend. In no way would I look at Judas as a friend. I would see him as an enemy. I would see him as a betrayer. I would see him as somebody I wanted out of my sight. I might even celebrate or, or be happy when bad things happened to him. But Jesus reminded Judas that my friendship, my relationship with you, my love for you did not stop when you hurt me. <laughs> even though Judas has kissed Jesus on the cheek and betrayed him to the very people that would take his life, Jesus calls him a friend. The men step forward and they seize Jesus. But you remember that Peter said, I'll defend you, Jesus. I, I will die for you. And in his defense, Peter attempts to do something. He whips out his sword and he starts hacking wildly. And he lops off Malchus, one of the soldiers' ear. And the ear falls to the ground. And certainly, things were about to get out of control when Jesus said, stop. He reaches down and he picks up Malchus's ear. And he puts it back on. I can't imagine what Malchus thought about this afterwards. But we do know what Jesus thought. Because Jesus turns to Peter and he says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus wasn't there to start a battle. Jesus knew that the war that was about to be waged was not going to be a war that was waged with sword upon sword. It wasn't going to be a, a, a battle that was going to end in the bloodshed of one and the victory of another. Jesus knew that the battle that was about to be waged was something completely different, that he would voluntarily allow himself to be killed. But in doing so, he would gain the ultimate victory, not just over, not over an earthly foe, but over the eternal foe, that is Satan and ultimately death, the curse of death that had followed from the beginning of time. 
we see Jesus standing trial, if you call it that. Because it really wasn't a trial. It was more of a, more of a contrived, let's see how we can make him look guilty enough to get our, our way and have him crucified. And, and so Jesus is very, very quiet during this time. In fact, really the only thing that we have recorded from Jesus as far as statements that Jesus might have said was when he was being interviewed by the high priest and then again by Pilate. And Pilate asked him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers back and said, you have said so. Jesus was a very smart guy. His wits were about him, even in this moment of intense pain and pressure. And, and it is that Jesus, I'm certain, was, was really living out the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. It said that as a lamb before the shears is silent, so was he. Jesus really did not speak to any of the accusers except to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate begins to kind of engage him. And I think Jesus talked to him because he knew that Pilate was really maybe seeking something deeper. Pilate's wife had had a dream, as you remember, and she said, Pilate, I had a dream that this man's an innocent man. Don't you do anything to him, right? And yet Pilate's in this terrible kind of situation. On one hand, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, deserving death, but on the other hand, he nearly has a riot breaking out, and the leaders that he depended on to control the people are demanding that this man die. It looks like he's an insurrectionist, although Pilate knows in his heart that he really isn't, and Pilate is faced with this dilemma. What is true? What is not true? What is right? What is wrong? Jesus says this to Pilate in John 18. In verse 36 beginning, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Pilate, if, if you look around, there's no one raising a fight right here. It's because my kingdom isn't the kind of kingdom that you're thinking of, Pilate. And then later on, down in verse number 37, Jesus answered Pilate's question. He said, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. There was one thing that Jesus never forgot, and that was what was real, what was true, what was his purpose in this world? He never allowed himself to be distracted from that. Even when Satan came and craftily created temptations, Jesus would push through the distractions and point to the truth. Even though people were crowding around him and were seeking to kind of get his attention in various ways, Jesus always remained focused on the truth. And he reminds Pilate that really that's what everything was about. He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone in the city of Jerusalem, in fact, everyone in the world today faces one big choice. That is, are we going to side on the side of what's true? Or are we going to choose to believe a lie? Now, now, Pilate, as you well know, is going to kind of try to take a cop-out sort of situation. He's going to try to wash his hands and act like he really doesn't have any guilt in this matter and that all the guilt goes on to the, to the, the, the chief priest and the leaders of the people at that point in time. But we all know that the truth is Pilate was guilty. Pilate could have stepped in. Pilate could have made a change. And yet Jesus consciously chose to have a conversation with him because anybody who's seeking the truth Jesus was ready to talk to. And then we find Jesus at the cross. We're not familiar with the form of execution that is 
crucifixion. It's far more barbaric than anything that we would allow in the modern world. In many ways, that's good. The Romans had figured this out because it was not just a way to kill somebody, but it was a way to instill a deep-seated fear in people of, of the Roman government and of their power and control. Had, had it not been a festival that next day, the, the people that were hung on that cross to die would have hung there not just for one day, but for a, a number of days. And, and people, they would normally put these, these crucifixions on a path leading to and from the city so that everybody as they came and went would watch day in and day out as the life slowly ebbed out of these people that were struggling to survive right here. This was a, a horrible, horrible way to die. For every moment that Jesus wanted to get a breath of air to either preserve his life or to say something, he would have to pull up on the nails that were driven through his hands and through his feet and pull himself into an upright enough position that he could get enough elevation in his diaphragm to actually pull air into his lungs. Most people who died of a crucifixion actually died of exhaustion and asphyxiation because they just could no longer pull themselves up to accomplish the act of breathing. And so every word that Jesus says from the cross is not just important because Jesus said it, but it's also very, very important because of the effort and the amount of intensity that Jesus would have had to put into the breathing in order to say those words. And Jesus said very little, but one thing that Jesus said that is shocking and yet very predictable, Luke records in Luke 23 in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus is looking out at all these people, the chief priests and the leaders of the people with hate in their eyes and in their hearts, the Roman soldiers who are milling around indifferent to the human suffering, hardened in their hearts by years of just doing these kinds of activities, no longer did the death or suffering of other people bother them. Or Jesus looking out in the circle that's broader than that, the mixed multitudes of people, some of them just there to watch the show, others there were, were there not, not bold enough to step forward and do anything about it. And he looked at this whole mass of humanity and his response to where he is is, Father, forgive these people. They don't really know what they're doing. A few verses down, Jesus begins to get heckled by the two other people that are crucified with him. Both of them were convicted criminals, and so they began to kind of have a debate with the, between the two of them. And, and one of them says, you know what? If you're really the Son of God, why don't you get down off the cross and get us out of here as well? We don't want to be here anymore, Jesus. And yet the other one, the other one unknowingly sided with the side of truth. He said, you know, he's an innocent man. We deserve to be hanging on this cross. He doesn't. And even in the midst of his pain and his suffering and his isolation and the task that was ahead of him, what Jesus pulled himself out of that and began to have a conversation with that one guy hanging there, dying with him. And he said to the, these words, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. For this one guy, this was the best day and the worst day of his entire life. It was the worst day because he was dying on a cross for the things that he had done. As a criminal, before the sun went down, he would no longer be on this earth spiritually. But Jesus said, this is the best day for you because today you will be with me in paradise. I'm about to die for your forgiveness. My sacrifice will be complete before your legs are broken. <laughs> you are going to go and have an opportunity to spend eternity with God because of how much I care about you. 
John 19 also records that among the people that were gathered there, one particular person showed up, and that was Jesus' mom. And Jesus speaks to her. He takes a moment to directly address her. And you have to think, what a painful, painful conversation that must have been. From, from a very young age, Mary had treasured things up in her heart. She knew that Jesus was a, a child of unusual circumstance. She knew that Jesus was a child of promise. She had treasured these things. She would considered these things. But now it was ending in a way that she could have never imagined. Her son, born of God, was now hanging on a cross. And Jesus simply says to her, woman, this is your son. He's kind of saying, look, I'm about to die. And then he said to a disciple, this is your mother. He was worried about his mother's well-being, about the people that he was responsible for. As the oldest child, he was responsible in that culture for his mother and for her physical needs because his father had gone. And he said, take care of my mom. Matthew, the 27 chapters, this moment where Jesus calls out the only time that we have outside of his prayer for forgiveness that he calls out to God. The world has become dark. There's earthquakes and rumblings. God has turned his face from this point in the world because on Jesus, all of our sin, all of my sin, all of your sin, all of humanity's brokenness and corruption has just been piled on him. And God, being a holy God, cannot look on sin. And so God has had to shield his face from that. And Jesus calls out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Jesus went through something that we will never have to. He protected us from what it's like to be in utter darkness of separation from God. Maybe one of the most powerful statements of Jesus is simply what he says in John 19 and verse 28. It's two words. He just said, I thirst. And it reminds us that Jesus was human just like we were. Our, his body was broken. He had been beaten. He had lost an incredible amount of blood. He was struggling to survive. He was thirsty. They provided him a sponge soaked in some sour wine vinegar. And when he had taken that, he said the three most important words that anyone has ever uttered in this world. It is finished. He wasn't just talking about, about his life because certainly that was finished. The Bible says that he, that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. But what Jesus meant was something far more. What he meant was it is finished. The job that I came here to accomplish has been accomplished. Not only is a job accomplished, but guys, think about this for a moment this morning. Not only is, is, is sin paid for, but something else was finished and that was the reign of death in this world. The reign of Satan holding death over people. Satan didn't know it right now. He and the demons in heaven are probably having a celebration on Friday afternoon but Jesus knew that Sunday was coming when he would walk out of that tomb because there was no way sin could hold him and be, or death could hold him rather and because of that we would be able to join him in that we would be covered in his blood we would have an opportunity to be filled with his spirit to be a part of his family so that when our eyes closed in death it would not just be finished for us but it would just be the beginning of everything that God truly intends for us. It was finished. His job was finished. But the reign of death in this world was over as well. 
There's a lot of iconic statements of Jesus. But I think this one is probably the one that set the the stage for every other statement. It's way back in Luke 22, in the garden, when Jesus is wrestling in prayer. And he goes to the Father and he says these words in verse 42. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, yours be done. That phrase really sets the tone for why Jesus was able to finish what he came here to do. He didn't want to go through the cross. He did not want to go through the agony and the physical torture. He certainly did not want to be abandoned by God, loaded down with all of our sin. We sometimes forget that while God hates sin, and it's just the opposite of God, Jesus is part of that Godhead. Jesus in and of himself hates sin as much as God does. Jesus is as holy as God is, and yet Jesus inherited all of my brokenness and all of my corruption. He took that from me so that I might be free of it. That's unbelievable love. He said, God, if there's any other way, let's do it. But it's not about my will. It's not about me. Your will be done. This morning, I want to ask us as a church family, as we gather here together, whose whose will is in control of our life? I think when you look at the the death of Jesus, you, you can't help but just be pulled into that and realize, how has this changed me? Are my relationships, are my lifestyle choices, are my deepest desires, are they for God's will or for, for my will? Is my, is my tongue, is my, my body, is my appetites, is my attitude, is that, is that reflective of what God's will for my life is? Or is that my will for my life? So often when I think about a lot of those things, I have to be honest and say, you know what? A lot of that is about Jason's. A lot of it's about, about me and, and what I, makes me comfortable or makes me happy. And yet Jesus in the garden wasn't worried about his own comfort. He was worried about my eternal salvation. Jesus said these words way back in Matthew 16 and verse 24 to the disciples. And at this time, they had no way to know exactly what Jesus was saying because because none of the events that we've talked about had transpired yet, but he says this. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And and when they heard that, they, they certainly understood what Jesus meant because they knew that the cross was an instrument of execution. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got to be willing to die to yourself. You've got to be willing to say, you know what? I want you to be in control of my life, Jesus. When we deny ourselves, it means that we live every moment of life to say no to self, but to say yes to God. Galatians, the second chapter in verse 20, the apostle Paul wrote it this way, and he's writing this to people that didn't have an opportunity to know know Christ personally like a lot of those Jewish Christians did. These are people that are kind of living over in Gaul, which is kind of Spain Spain and to the the western part of Europe. And and as he's writing this to them, he's explaining what it is that drives him. And, And I think it's just so important that we notice that. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live Now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
Paul said, when I think about Jesus, when I think about his crucifixion, it motivates me. He's not really there alongside of Jesus on a Golgotha, but he's saying in my mind, in my heart, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives through me. It's no longer my will, but it's his will that will call the shots for my life. We have an amazing, amazing God who loved us and did things for us we could never imagine. And we're gonna pause this morning and Brody's gonna come and prepare our hearts to remember what it was that Jesus did for us on the cross. In the beginning, God created the sun, moon, and stars, the animals, trees, and seas. And he made us his own. And he gave us a garden. And there was beauty and peace and life, but that wasn't enough. And so we sinned and we ate and we fell. And where there was once beauty and peace and life, there was now pain and chaos and death. We went from a garden to a grave. But God promised to bring us back, back from the grave into the garden. Days, weeks, years, generations of waiting for the promise, the promise to come back to the garden. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, friend of sinners, man of sorrows, Lord of glory and light of the world, rejected, refused, condemned and crucified, buried in a borrowed tomb, forsaken and forgotten. But three days later, he stepped out of his grave and into a garden. And the same will be true of all who trust him. Where there is pain and chaos and death, there will be beauty and peace and life. Because Jesus is alive, so is hope, so is grace, so is salvation, so is transformation. Because Jesus is alive, we can step out of the grave and into the garden. It's a day that's going to change the course of the world like none other. And this morning as we close, I just want to remind us that Jesus' resurrection doesn't just, uh, isn't just a neat fact of history, but it's something that literally changed the course of human existence. Within 100 years after Jesus resurrected from the dead, the world order as it had been was already beginning to shift. People were moving out of Jerusalem and throughout the known world, and they were beginning to proclaim Jesus Christ, but not just Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ resurrected. And the people who knew it the best, the people that were willing to die for what they said that they, that they had seen. It wasn't just a few people in some small little obscure town in the middle of Judea, but it was people from all over the world. It's because the resurrection gives us something that we find in nothing else. The resurrection get, means that forgiveness is real. That we have a hope and opportunity to, to be able to walk away from the things that we did, not because we've somehow can, uh, avoided the consequence of them, but because Jesus took those consequences upon himself. There's no way that we can undo what we've done, and we would love to. We would like to erase certain chapters of our life and back up in certain things and statements and areas that we lived, but we can't do that. But through the power of God, God has said, when I forgive, my forgiveness is complete. Because of the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross, our sins can be covered over. And God says they're as far as the east is from the west. They're buried in the deepest sea. They're forgotten because when I look at you, my child, I see my son. 
The Bible talks about us being clothed with Christ. We have the opportunity to put on Christ, to put on the very nature of Christ, and we're called to live like Christ. And that's what makes everything that we read about this morning so powerful and so important. The resurrection means hope, but the resurrection also means forgiveness. I mean, uh, resurrection means forgiveness, but it also means hope. Because without the resurrection, this life is a very, very meaningless sort of thing. We, do, we just live it, and things kind of get worse and worse, and then we die, and it's over. But with the resurrection, there's something completely different at play. Right? We, because of the resurrection, we can answer a question that Job asked thousands of years before Jesus lived. Job, the, the Old Testament character, asked this simple question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And the answer to that question, Jesus firmly answered when he walked out of the grave. The answer to that question is yes. In Luke, the 24th chapter, Luke describes the fact that Jesus had to go through everything that we talked about this morning because that was the purpose. That was the reason that he came into this world. And that's the third thing that the resurrection provides for us. As we, as we leave this place today and we, we head out to our families and to our homes and to life for, this next, for the next year, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ constantly should be a reminder to us that we're not here by accident, but that we're here for a purpose. The resurrection means that our lives have purpose. They have meaning. There's a reason why we are alive. Ephesians, the, the second chapter in verse 10, is this beautiful passage the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he uses such great imagery here. He says, we are his workmanship. You look at yourself and you think, I might see failure, I might see weakness, I might see regret, but when God looks at us, he says, I see my project I see something that I'm crafting, that I'm creating, that I'm molding, and I'm making into something that will accomplish the purpose that I put them here for. That's exactly how God looks at us. And God knew that, yes, we're gonna blow it. Yes, we're gonna get ourselves into a place where we're broken and useless. But if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know that God specializes in taking things that are discarded, things that are broken, things that are useless, and putting them back together and making something beautiful from them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The resurrection reminds us that if God can take, in a, broke, can take a broken and beat body, a body that's three days in the grave and reanimate that into fullness of life, that God can take the mess that we've made of our lives spiritually and change us as well. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. For every one of us in this room this morning, those works look different. That story will be different because we are different. But the one thing that we share together is that we have a Savior who loved us. We have a Lord that sent his Son to live as one of us to teach and to, and, to, and to instruct and to guide and to illustrate what it looks like to be a, a follower of God, but ultimately to give his life as our atoning sacrifice. But the story doesn't stop there. Really, the story was just beginning. 
Because in reality, Jesus' resurrection from the grave ushered in a whole new era that Jesus was excited about. If he was, if he was not looking forward to the cross, he was certainly looking forward to what followed the cross. He told the disciples, I'm about to leave, but this is going to be great because the comforter's going to come and the counselor's going to come and he's going he's to work in you and he's going to use you to go throughout the whole world. I'm just one person, but my spirit can fill and inhabit everybody. And it's that message that, that happened on the day of Pentecost where Peter gets up and he says, hey, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God, working with us and through us every single day. The resurrection changed history, but the resurrection changes our history as well. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we we look forward to forgiveness. We have the hope of heaven. We recognize that this life, no matter what our age and what we've done, has a purpose and we have a reason for living. And so we walk out of these church doors today celebrating, celebrating the goodness of God, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, celebrating the resurrection and celebrating the opportunity that we have to be a part of that amazing, amazing story. As we do that today, we're going to stand up together as a church and we're just going to sing a song of celebration that reminds us that he is alive and not just alive 2,000 years ago, but he's alive today. He's alive in every one of us and he wants to work through us to accomplish his purpose in this world. Let's sing together, church. Be covered over and God says they're as far as the east is from the west. They're buried in the deepest sea. They're forgotten because when I look at you, my child, I see my son. The Bible talks about us being clothed with Christ. We have the opportunity to put on Christ, to put on the very nature of Christ, and we're called to live like Christ. And that's what makes everything that we read about this morning so powerful and so important. The resurrection means hope, but the resurrection also means forgiveness. I mean, uh, resurrection means forgiveness, but it also means hope. Because without the resurrection, this life is a very, very meaningless sort of thing. We, do, we just live it and things kind of get worse and worse and then we die and it's over. But with the resurrection, there's something completely different at play. Right? We, because of the resurrection, we can answer a question that Job asked thousands of years before Jesus lived. Job, the, the Old Testament character, asked this simple question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And the answer to that question, Jesus firmly answered when he walked out of the grave. The answer to that question is yes. In Luke, the 24th chapter, Luke describes the fact that Jesus had to go through everything that we talked about this morning because that was the purpose. That was the reason that he came into this world. And that's the third thing that the resurrection provides for us. As we, as we leave this place today and we, we head out to our families and to our homes and to life for, this next, for the next year, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ constantly should be a reminder to us that we're not here by accident, but that we're here for a purpose. The resurrection means that our lives have purpose. They have meaning. There's a reason why we are alive. Ephesians, the the second chapter in verse 10, is this beautiful passage the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he uses such great imagery here. He says, we are his workmanship. You look at yourself and you think, I might see failure, I might see weakness, I might see regret, but when God looks at us, he says, I see my project, 
I see something that I'm crafting, that I'm creating, that I'm molding, and I'm making into something that will accomplish the purpose that I put them here for. That's exactly how God looks at us. And God knew that, yes, we're gonna blow it. Yes, we're gonna get ourselves into a place where we're broken and useless. But if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know that God specializes in taking things that are discarded, things that are broken, things that are useless, and putting them back together and making something beautiful from them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The resurrection reminds us that if God can take, in a, broke, can take a broken and beat body, a body that's three days in the grave and reanimate that into fullness of life, that God can take the mess that we've made of our lives spiritually and change us as well. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. For every one of us in this room this morning, those works look different. That story will be different because we are different. But the one thing that we share together is that we have a Savior who loved us. We have a Lord that sent his Son to live as one of us to teach and to, and, to, and to instruct and to guide and to illustrate what it looks like to be a, a follower of God, but ultimately to give his life as our atoning sacrifice. But the story doesn't stop there. Really, the story was just beginning. Because in reality, Jesus' resurrection from the grave ushered in a whole new era that Jesus was excited about. If he was, if he was not looking forward to the cross, he was certainly looking forward to what followed the cross. He told the disciples, I'm about to leave, but this is going to be great because the comforter's going to come, and the counselor's going to come, and he's going he's to work in you, and he's going to use you to go throughout the whole world. I'm just one person, but my spirit can fill and inhabit everybody. And it's that message that, that happened on the day of Pentecost where Peter gets up and he says, hey, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God, working with us and through us every single day. The resurrection changed history, but the resurrection changes our history as well. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we, we look forward to forgiveness. We have the hope of heaven. We recognize that this life, no matter what our age and what we've done, has a purpose and we have a reason for living. And so we walk out of these church doors today celebrating, celebrating the goodness of God, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, celebrating the resurrection and celebrating the opportunity that we have to be a part of that amazing, amazing story. As we do that today, we're going to stand up together as a church and we're just going to sing a song of celebration that reminds us that he is alive and not just alive 2,000 years ago, but he's alive today. He's alive in every one of us and he wants to work through us to accomplish his purpose in this world. Let's sing together, church.